You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, I'll turn again if you didn't leave a marker there to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to spend this morning almost our entire time in verses 13 to 21, not because the first 12 verses don't matter. Anyway, they tell us what happened to John the Baptist. John, uh, as you know, was a kind of cousin to Jesus. He was the, uh, a prophet, probably the most famous prophet of his day. He was prophesied about. He was the forerunner that was to pave the way, if you will, for the Messiah who was to come, the Savior King who would come and redeem God's people. John had been, as you see, we saw earlier in chapter 14, he was arrested, put in prison. Herod, this would be the Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, the one who had wanted to kill Jesus as a baby. His kingdom had divided in three parts between various of his sons, and this is one of those sons, and he rules in that area. He wants to kill John, but he, as we saw, he fears the crowd. Um, John, Herod had, married, had been married and uh, I uh, fell in love on a trip to Rome. One of his brothers lived in Rome, and he fell in love with his brother's wife, whose name was Herodias, also sort of related to him, not surprisingly, with a name like Herodias. And uh, so while he was there, they made a plan that they would get married to each other and leave their spouses, but uh, she insisted he had to divorce his first wife. She wouldn't be the second wife. She wanted to be the wife, and so she's cunning and ruthless. We learned that just from her story. And uh, so Herodias, uh, eventually he disposes his wife, Herodias becomes his wife, and John the Baptist, this prophet of righteousness, says, you can't do that. It's unlawful, and it's not right, and it ticks off. Well, we, Herod doesn't like it, but his wife Herodias really doesn't like it. So they put him in prison, and finally, as we read in the story here, of course, uh, she gets an opportunity. Her daughter dances for him, for Herod, and uh, when he offers her anything she wants, she demands the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And uh, that's the situation we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 14. John the Baptist, the the one who Jesus would say in another place was the greatest man born of woman, is dead. Dishonorably, ignominiously beheaded at the request of a dancing teenage girl on behalf of her petty and ruthless mother. And, And we have to think that John, or Jesus rather, feels it. All of it. The pain of it, the injustice of it, the loss. He's not fearful of Herod, not at all, but he probably realizes that he is now at risk. Herod is killing his enemies. He's heard about Jesus, as we see in the first couple verses. And all of this happens on the heels of what we saw last week at the end of chapter 13, where Jesus returns to his hometown and they reject him and they want to kill him. Not just his hometown folks, not just his friends, his own family. It's a rough time. Where do you go when you feel like that? You know, 2020 was a rough year. Many of us did and are feeling it. What do you do with these kind of disappointments and rejections and loss? 
with feeling vulnerable or feeling at risk? What do you do when things seem stacked against you? Where do you take those kind of feelings? You will take them somewhere. You can't keep them bottled up forever, not really. You take those feelings somewhere. They'll leak out. They'll leak out in your attitude, in your words. They'll leak out in your relationships, into your work, into your spiritual life. Those struggles, those feelings, those challenges, you'll take them somewhere. And it would be tempting to say that Jesus is showing us here what we need to do when we feel those things. It would be tempting to say, well, we need to do what Jesus did. Pull away. Get off on a retreat. Relax a little bit. Recenter. Reset. And I think that's probably not bad advice. But I don't think it's the main message here. I don't think that this story was written telling us, like Jesus, withdraw and get away for a while. Now, there's something more for us here than that. In fact, let's take a second and ask God to help us see it. Father, I pray now, as we look at your word, inspired by your spirit, we'll need that same spirit's help to discern what's true, to discern what's important. Help me to say the things that are true and wise and valuable, and help us all to hear them with ears, or eyes rather, ears, no, ears and hearts of faith, to receive them as true and useful and good for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the story ends in verse 21. It says, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. 5,000 men. That's a big crowd. It might be 10, 12, 15,000 people. And it seems like big crowds are the story of Jesus' life. Back in 1997, I was a student down at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, and a friend uh, invited me. He was going up to Washington, D.C. Promise Keepers was, you remember that organization, Promise Keepers, was having a big event. Uh, I forget, it was Stand in the Gap, they called it. And it was, they were going to try to get a million men to come to the mall, in, uh, not the shopping mall, but the mall between you know, the Smithsonian and the Capitol and uh, the Washington Monument there in Washington, D.C. for this massive rally. And they were bringing in you know, Christian musical artists and Christian speakers, and it was meant to be this big, significant time. And so my friend invited me to go. And I, you know, estimates, uh, the number of people vary, but there's something like a million people there. And it's... That's a massive crowd. Like, if you talk to someone else who was there, you don't say, oh, I think I saw you, right? You don't, you don't, you know, if you, and these are the days before most of us had cell phones, so if you got separated from your party, hopefully you had a plan. But it's just a massive, you go on and on and on. There's just people everywhere. Well, Jesus has crowds, not million men crowds, but big crowds in his life all the time. They constantly are drawn to him. They come to hear him teach, for sure. They especially come to see miracles and, and hopefully to benefit from miracles because he's healing people left and right, changing lives. It was a big deal. You know, today if you came to me and said, I'm really sick or I'm really injured, should I go see a faith healer or should I go to the hospital? I'm going to say, go to the hospital. Absolutely, go to the hospital. But in Jesus' day, the question is, should I go see Jesus or just try to live with it? Go to Jesus. I mean, go to Jesus, right? Not a lot of alternatives. And so people are coming to him constantly. 
Massive crowds are normal for him. Every day, Jesus' life is dominated by other people's needs. Every day. Do you know what that's like? Maybe if you're a mother of young children who are at home, you have a little idea of what that's like. Your day in life is dominated by other people's needs. And Jesus decides to get away from it for a bit. Some of it may be the, the stress, the pressure, the, the constant pressing of the crowds. Some of it quite possibly is the sense that, that Herod may come after him. Now Jesus isn't afraid, but it's not time for confrontation yet. And so he decides to withdraw. He's going to go literally out of Herod's district, out of his jurisdiction, and spend a little time away. Maybe he needs to mourn a little the passing of John the Baptist, although we can't be sure how much earlier than this that actually happened. So, so look at verse 13. Jesus, when he heard this, it says he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What does Jesus want? He wants to be alone. He wants to be alone away from the crowds, just him and, and probably his disciples, away from the press, away from the rush. He just wants to be alone, a chance to rest, a chance to be refreshed, a chance to pray. In fact, we'll see next week that when the story's done, that's what he's going to go do. So he gets on a boat where the crowd can't follow, and he starts across the Sea of Galilee. And someone in the crowd steps up and says, hey, listen, everybody, let's Give Jesus a break. You know, give him a chance to rest. We'll check back in with him next week. No, that's not. They say, look, he's going that way. And the Sea of Galilee is big, but it's not that big. Quite possibly, they see him head off in this direction, and they just they start to follow. I mean, they probably see his boat out there in the lake. So Jesus sails across the lake with his disciples, and the crowd, they run around on the shore. It's several miles, but... They're going to do it. People were good walkers back then. They walked everywhere. When Jesus arrives at his desolate place, he finds a desolate place teeming with a massive crowd of people waiting for him. And while the text doesn't say it, I think it's safe to say that Jesus is tired. How do you feel when you're tired? How do, you, how do you treat people when you're tired? But a week and a half ago, we moved Annika, our two-year-old, out of her crib, which um, she was easily jumping out of, and just moved her into a regular twin-size bed. And that's gone mostly okay. Mostly. One night last week, I got in bed relatively early for me. It was before 10.30. I was pretty pleased. I'm like, I'm going to get an eight-hour eight hour night, which would be really good. Um, but, but she'd already once gotten up about 10 o'clock, gotten up, and she runs around, or she runs into Aubrey's room, or runs into whatever. And uh, so get up, put her back to bed. Annika, stay in bed. Just stay here. She wants you to sing her song. Sing her song. Stay in bed. All right, good. Addie's in the other bed. 10.30. I've been in bed for a few minutes. She's out again. Annika, got to be tired. Back in bed. I go to bed. Half an hour passes. I think she's good. I'm not asleep yet, but out again. 
11.30, out again. 12 o'clock, out again. Every half hour, I just barely get to sleep. She's back out. 12.15, finally, last time. All right, she's in bed. I come downstairs, I go to sleep. About 3 o'clock, hear footsteps. Hear one of the other girls. I feel like I've just fallen asleep. And she's up there, and i got to go back up. And I'm thrilled to see her. It's so exciting. It's been almost three hours. And I take her back, and I put her into bed. And she doesn't want to really lay in bed. And she's pushing up, and she's like, baby shark. I'm like, I I don't want to sing baby shark at 3 o'clock in the morning. But she's adamant. So there I am at 3 o'clock in the morning, whisper singing baby shark to Annika. And she lays, I start singing, she lays her head down. I'm, I'm not in a good mood at 3 o'clock in the morning. I go back to bed. She stays in bed. Rest of the night, 3.30. Ian comes bursting through my door. He's all upset, brow furrowed like it always is when he's irritated about something. There's a scary face on my wall. I doubt it. I doubt it. And we go back all the way down to the basement. Like, where? Right there. I don't see it. He get, jumps up on his bed, climbs over the wall, puts his finger right in the wall, right there. Like, just a wall. <laughs> I don't see your scary face. But I'm not real happy to see your face at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> when you're tired, when people are demanding and unreasonable, you just want to be left alone. I just want to rest, right? I just want a good night's sleep. I don't want you to be around. I just want... I put them back to bed, I sang their dumb songs, I indulged their silly fears, but I was irritated. I wanted to get back away from them. I was eager to go back to my bed and take care of my need for sleep. Jesus shows up here, tired, been hard-pressed for a long time. A big crowd is not what he wanted. He wanted to be alone. Now, knowing Jesus, we might guess what he'll do here. But how does he feel? How does he feel? I mean, deep down, how does he feel? Well, verse 14 tells us. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Compassion. What did Jesus feel? You know, the word compassion, it literally comes from a root that that means like the guts or, or the entrails. You know, we talk about feeling things with our heart, but in the ancient world, they talked about feeling things with their guts, which is not surprising, right? If you're nervous, excited, whatever, where do you, you don't feel it up here, you feel it down here, right? That's where the deep seed of feelings were. And Jesus uh, has compassion on them deep down in his guts. What does he feel for them? Love, concern, He feels compassion. And we get a picture here of the very heart of Christ. It's not just how Christ acts toward his people, but how he feels about people. Sometimes the way we act toward people is not the way we feel toward people. Jesus isn't showing obligatory kindness. He's not saying, well, I am the Messiah. I probably should act like one. He's not mustering up reserves of willpower. All right, come on, got to do the right thing. I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. 
No, they've come to him with deep need, and what they get is his deep heart, his deep concern, his deep care, his love, because that's who Jesus is, and that's what his heart is like. As the very Son of God, he has God's compassion. Remember Moses in Exodus 34 asked God, I want to see your glory, and God sticks him in the cleft of the rock and passes by and proclaims his name. He's going to proclaim his glory by proclaiming his name. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God. That's what God is like. You know, I know one place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Turn back just a couple pages to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tells us what his heart is like. It's gentle and lowly. He doesn't just act in gentle and lowly ways because they seem appropriate for a person in his position. That's what his true heart is like. He's gentle. Dane Ortland describes it this way, that Jesus is meek and humble and gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not pointed finger, but open arms. He's gentle in heart, and he's lowly in heart. A term that often is translated humble, but it describes usually a low position. So Mary will say in her song in Luke 1, uh, she'll bless God that he exalts people of humble or lowly estate, people like Mary herself. Paul tells the Roman Christians, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And Jesus says, I'm lowly in heart. The idea here seems to be that he is accessible and approachable. He's not high and mighty. No, to be sure, he is God and he is holy and glorious. But to his people, he doesn't hold us at arm's length, under his thumb, high and mighty and unapproachable. He is accessible. He's not too high for us. And the takeaway is for Jesus, come to me. Come to me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not hard to come to. I'm not hard to come to. Because my heart towards you, my sincere heart, my deep heart is gentle and lowly. The thing that you must do to be welcomed and embraced by Jesus is just come to him. Not with your resume in hand. Not boasting about how great you are. Then he starts to do this. No, you come to him with your need. You come to him with humility. You come with your trouble. You come with your suffering. You come with your sin. You can't come with your pride. You can't come saying, I'm probably the sort of person you would want, Jesus. Look at me. No. You come with your need. And, and not just your suffering and frustration and pain, but amazingly, with our sin. Well, that's usually what holds us back, isn't it? 
the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, writing back in the 1600s, wrote in a, in a book called The Heart of Christ. He said this, Our sins move him, that's God, move him to pity more than to anger. For, as it says, he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are meant sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or as one is to a part of his own body that has leprosy. He doesn't hate the part of his body because it's his flesh. He hates the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected even more. Goodwin says, Christ, when we come to him with our sin, isn't repelled. He doesn't say, why, why are you coming here? No, as he sees us suffering under our sin, our own mistakes, our own failures, our own rebellion and hardness of heart, he is moved to even greater pity. And his aim is not to ruin us, but to ruin the sin, Goodwin says, because his heart is drawn to us. Even in our sin, his call, come to me, is not revoked, but it's even more urgent, more passionate, more earnest. Not coming making excuses. Not coming say, well, ignore the bad, but look at the good. But in humble repentance, he calls us to come. That's what Jesus' deepest heart is like. You know, one of our core commitments at Springview is to a kind of deep spirituality. Not going through the motions, not external compliance to other people's expectations, but rather hearts and lives that are truly drawing close to Jesus because that's where we flourish. Last week we looked at Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth and we saw that there and for us, one of the struggles we face in drawing close is that we can become so overly familiar with Jesus that we don't see him as special anymore. But here this morning, I think we see another struggle that many of us face as well when it comes to drawing close to Jesus, although I'm not sure if we've really articulated it for ourselves. Sometimes we struggle, well, sometimes we may struggle with whether or not Jesus is able to handle our struggles and sins. But mostly I think we know he's able. Oh, I think many of us deep down wonder whether Jesus wants to care for us in that way. Not whether he can but whether he will. I mean, we can think of so many reasons he wouldn't. We can think of so many reasons he would not want us to come to him. It's kind of like, um, I, I have a hard time calling people on the phone. I can't altogether explain it. I like to talk to people. But whenever I pick up the phone to call somebody, my default mindset, and I don't know where it comes from, is they're probably busy and don't want to be bothered. So yesterday I had to call Andy Swalwell about something for children's ministry. And, and this is the mental process. I didn't stop down and tell my, this is just what's happening. Andy's busy. She's got four young kids, and um, she's doing a full-time sub. So she's working every day. This is Saturday. It's her one day off. She's probably doing something if I call. And this whole mental process of why she probably would not want to be bothered. But I really had to ask her a question, so I called her, right? And it was fine. Andy's very gracious. But I think, I know that I bring that mindset, and maybe you do too, when it comes to talking to God or drawing close to Him. And it may not be so much with what's going on with Him, but what's going on with us. Well, look at me. Look how long it's been since I called. 
Look all the things I've done, even this week. Look at the attitudes I've had. Look at that thing in my past that was terrible. And we, we don't draw close to him. We think of all sorts of reasons why he would not want us. Have you ever felt that when you go to pray? We're not saying to ourselves, I don't think he can hear me. We're saying, why would he hear me? Why would he listen to me? On a planet full of 7 billion people, why would he pay any attention to me? We don't wonder if he can. We just couldn't figure out why he would. That goes way back. It goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve sin, right? They disobey God. And what do they immediately do? Withdraw. They hide. They're ashamed. They don't want God to see them. They don't want to be close. And we've been doing it ever since. Listen, Jesus is not half-hearted when it comes to you. You're never just a number to him. You're never just one of seven billion people on this planet. He's not bored with you or your story. He's not tired of your needs or your problems. He's not reluctant to get involved in the the affairs of your life. He's not hoping you'll give him a break and take your problems to someone else for a while. He both commands and invites with total sincerity and all earnestness from his deepest heart, come to me. Bring your struggles. Bring your sins. He only holds away the proud. He only holds at a distance those who don't think they really need him. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. God doesn't just act that way. What we see here, that that is Jesus' deepest heart. He feels that way unfailingly for his people. How different could our lives be if we took him up on that invitation? Not just once, not just at some point in your past where you said, okay, Jesus, I'll have you, I'll trust in you, I'll take you as my Savior. But what if that was our our everyday attitude and posture? Turning to him humbly, knowing that he wants us to. He doesn't hold his nose. He's not reluctant. He's not like, okay, but not too close. Come to me. Draw in close. You know, there is someone that will tell you to stay away, but it's not him. You'll tell yourself that. Just like me and my phone calls, you'll think of all sorts of reasons why he doesn't want to hear from you, why he doesn't want you to draw close. And we have an enemy. We have an enemy that will will holler in our ear, he doesn't want you. Why would you go to him? You don't belong with him. I think it's interesting that the verse in James, a well-known verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know what the verse right before it says? Resist the devil. Because he's going to tell you, he's going to tell you to stay away. How much shame might be we rid of if we just came and handed it over to him and his compassionate heart? How much fear might be we rid of if we brought it to him and his compassionate heart? 
How much joy might we find if we brought everything in our lives to his compassionate heart? How much spiritual power might we find if we brought it to his compassionate heart? One of our very greatest struggles is believing that we can and that he wants us to bring all things. Again, not our impressive resume, but our struggles and our sins to him. And we will find his heart large and open and earnest toward us. Well, my desire for me and for you is that we would know Jesus with that kind of compassionate, kind, and gracious heart. There's more here. I, I'm not going to take time to, to go through every detail of the story, but but I wanted you to see as we finish up this morning where this is going. Jesus comes and he has compassion for them. And he heals their sick. And if we read the parallel accounts in the other gospels, he's teaching as well. And it gets late in the day and he sends his disciples come and they say, hey, this is a desolate place. There's nothing here. Let's send these people out into the villages to find food. Right? Well, first of all, that's not very realistic. There are not many villages in desolate places. The villages are going to be very small. There's pretty strict codes about hospitality. It's a high cultural value. These 10 to 15,000 people are not going to find hospitality. It's not like they're going to go to, you know, they can show up on, you know, Baldwin Road and hit all the restaurants, right? They're going to need to go to people's homes, and there's not going to be enough. But the disciples say, we can't feed them, send them away. And Jesus says to them, remarkably, he says, they don't need to go away, verse 16. You give them something to eat. Well, you give them something to eat. And they go, well, we've got five loaves and two fish. We can't. That's not going to be nearly enough. And they're right. Why does Jesus tell them that? You feed them. Does, does he, is there like a trick they should know? Like, think about it, guys. Think about it, boys. We've talked about this. You know what to do. We've got five loaves and two fish. There's... 12,000 people, what's the trick? Well, there's no trick, right? There's no technique. They can't do it. And they try to think of a way. Well, we, there's no way. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to say something like this. Well, we can't do that, Jesus. But you could. You could. When they say, we only have five loaves and two fish, he says in verse 18, bring them here to me. That's the answer. That's the answer right there. There's a great need. What do we do? Bring them here to me, Jesus says. Look, we have found Jesus compassionate and kind toward us. What is our job? Bring more people here to him. That they'd find him compassionate and all satisfying too. There's all sorts of things going on in this passage. There are ways which Jesus resembles, a, he's kind of a new Moses, right? There's people in the wilderness bringing down food for God's people like Moses and manna in the Old Testament. Uh, he's, he's a greater prophet. Both Elisha and Elijah have miracles similar to this where they feed people with small amounts of food. He is uh, drawing on Matthew chapter 8. Uh, he's kind of the messianic host, right? There's going to be a great banquet in God's kingdom and we're all going to sit there and Jesus is the host of this meal. There's all sorts of things going on here. We don't know if the crowd ever really realizes what the miracle here is. 
There's no record of them saying, wow, Jesus, that's amazing, and they marvel. It may be that only the disciples really appreciate what happened here, but they're the ones that need this lesson. What do we do? Well, we just bring people to Jesus. That's what they need. That's where they need to go. That's who they need to find. That's the answer. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus brings them into that mission. He brings them into that. Where do you go to find the love and care and concern and need, supply for your need? You just bring people to Jesus. We get to the end of Matthew and we see the same thing. They go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, teach them everything that I've commanded you, baptize them. Jesus brings them, he brings us into that mission. That is itself a gracious gift. We don't hoard Christ's compassion and love. We don't hoard the good news that we have of God's deep heart for us. We share it. We bring other people with us and find that Jesus can supply our needs from, from practically nothing at all. Listen, you have things going on probably in your life. It, it may be struggles that you have with uh, situations in your life. It could be health struggles, financial, really all sorts of issues in your life that are, that are difficult and pressing, and most of us know those. And it feels like this last year has pressed even more of those on us or, or made the ones we had even more difficult. And you may look at, look at the situation, you look at your options, and you say, I don't see a solution here. I just don't. I don't see how this works out. I don't see how this ends well. And Jesus would say, why don't you bring that to me? Of course, you have people in your life who are in the exact same situation. You bring them to Jesus too. Or it may not be that kind of struggle. It may be for many of us struggles. We have ongoing battle that we're engaged in with sin that depresses us and discourages us and tempts us to throw in the towel and give up. You say, I don't see how I can beat that. I've struggled with that my whole life. That's been an ongoing issue as long as I can remember. I'll probably never get over that. And Jesus says, why don't you bring that to me? I don't see a solution. No, you don't have the solution. That's right, you don't have the solution. You've got five loaves and two fish for a 12,000-person problem. And Jesus says, I have everything you need for that. And not only that, but we learn in this passage, his deepest heart is to meet us and help us and give us everything that we need. Listen, if we really believe that, if we really embrace that, in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our lives, in our relationships, it would, it would change our lives and it would change our church. Well, let's pray that God will do just that. Father, I pray. I pray that you would help us. We are easily discouraged, easily distracted. We easily lose hope. And many of our problems, whether they're with the, the issues and struggles of our life, whether they're struggles with sin, we, they feel like five loaves and two fish solutions to a 10 to 15,000 person problem. And we look inside of ourselves for how we're going to fix it. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you, that we would receive and accept your invitation to come to you, 
that we would not doubt your heart. We know the enemy wants us to doubt it. Wants us to think that you're holding back on us, that you're withholding good, that we have to, we have to fix everything in our lives before we could ever come to you because he doesn't want us to come to you. So I pray that we would, with humility and faith, come to you wholeheartedly every single day. That we would seek you in your word, that we would seek you in prayer, that we would bring, that we would appropriate the truth of the gospel onto our hearts every single day of our lives and find therein encouragement, joy, and hope. Father, the fact that you have sent Jesus for us to die in our place, to secure an eternal future for us if we put our trust and faith in him proves beyond any doubt how you really feel about us. Because you are gracious and kind, you have sent your son Jesus for us. How will you then withhold anything else from us? Father, I pray we'd be a people, we'd be a church that is learning and growing into your truest, deepest heart, that we would find in Jesus all the love, all the care, all the concern, all the hope for future, that we need. Father, I pray that you would press that on us as we want, when we wander away and stray, when we grow discouraged and lose hope, I pray that you would kindly draw us back and we would accept Jesus' invitation to come to him. Lord, I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Um, I'm going to read a short word of benediction here in just a moment. Let me share a couple brief announcements with you. One is we are looking to start Awana again. We've um, played around with the date and that a little bit. We were hoping to start this Wednesday. Um, we are going to kick that back one more week just to make sure we got everything in place. So a week from this Wednesday, um, which I think is February 3rd, uh, we're planning to resume Awana. You'll get some more information about that, email, postcard probably as well. But So not this Wednesday, Awana. A week from Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll be back at it and looking forward to that. Also tonight, our youth group was scheduled to meet. We're not going to be able to meet tonight. we got some sick leaders and other stuff going on. So Lord willing, next Sunday we'll meet again for youth group as well. Uh, but let me read you these words. 2 Corinthians 13, that letter ends this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.